What's up, everyone? Happy Saturday. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila, and we have an awesome show ahead for you. Yes, In fact, we we're going to have an incredibly important interview with the president of the American Postal Workers Union, Mark Diamondstein, and uh, we're also going to discuss uh, the player strike that happened this week, uh, along with why Kenosha is in a pretty terrible economic situation uh, because of deindustrialization. So we'll discuss that in my commentary segment. And lots of salt today. Just mm. pouring that salt, right, Nando? Um, yes. Especially for our good friend, Rahm Emanuel, a failed politician who likes to give advice to current politicians. <laughs> You're sounding like Trump. He's a failed politician, likes to give advice. You know, very nasty, very he's, nasty to me. Yeah. Not good. Not, 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 not a good politician. The, fa- um, the do-nothing Democrat. <laughs> Wait, but speaking of Trump, Anna, I, I got to ask you because this week has been the RNC and I have not watched almost any of it. Uh, I went to the RNC in 2012. I went to the RNC in 2016. But this year I am not watching it a lot. I know you've been covering it nightly for TYT. Uh, I got to hear your thoughts. What, what's that been like? What Just watching that nonstop? Well, I, okay. So let me just uh, be clear in that I did not watch the RNC nonstop. Uh, <laughs> there was pressure to cover. So our programming director at TYT is super considerate of hosts and how burnt out we get. So she did a really good job in ensuring that none of us had to cover the entire event. Uh, the same went for the DNC, by the way. So I only covered one night of the RNC. That was the only night where I actually watch the full, you know, thing. And uh, it was Wednesday night. It was pretty terrifying, to be honest with you. And I say terrifying because Republicans know how to message. Republicans know how to hit their political opponents where it hurts. There was a lot of messaging about how Joe Biden's this great empathetic person. And honestly, I don't know how much that kind of message is going to resonate, especially when people are really feeling the economic burden of the inaction by our congressional politicians, right? And what did, what did Trump do? Even though we know he's full of it, uh, he latched on to a populist message and spoke to the economic issues that Americans are feeling right now. And he also, I mean, he lied in his speech. There's no question. Uh, one of the things he lied about, one of the many things he lied about, was in regard to his executive orders, which intended to lower prescription drug costs. And guess what? He signed that executive order and literally did nothing, nothing. (laughs) You know, the drug prices haven't come down. The pharmaceutical companies are like, yeah, F off. We're not doing that. And uh, Trump hasn't held them accountable. It was all about the theatrics of signing that executive order, which then gave him the ability to brag about it during his RNC speech. But again, the proof is in the pudding and the pudding is crap. (laughs) So there's there's really nothing done for Americans to improve their lives. But I don't know. I mean, politics really is about marketing and messaging. And unfortunately, the worst party is better at it. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that I, I noticed just from all the clips on Twitter and the, the speaker lineup is that the RNC was populated by a lot of these figures that were almost kind of like media creations. You know, I'm, t- I'm thinking of like the, the Covington High School kids, 
you know, which I just saw uh, that kid, whatever his name is, Nick Sandman or something, just got hired mm-hmm. to by, by the Mitch McConnell campaign. <laughs> um, but like these, and then like the the guys and you know the the couple that stood in front of their house with the guns and all that stuff. Like they're they're almost like media creations that then become kind of flashpoints in the culture war, and Republicans really latch onto them, and it's kind of that that dynamic being played over and over again. And uh, I I reckon that you're right that 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 is probably better marketing than uh, you know the the democrats trotting out colin powell and john case like two people who like nobody cares about anymore like nobody cares about like literally like not a single voter cares about those two people well some people do care but they care in a way that i think the biden campaign is you know completely overlooking and not considering you know there's just this assumption that progressive voters are going to Go ahead and tuck tail, fall in line, and vote for Biden. And and look, I'm not talking about public figures who identify as progressives. I'm talking about average Americans who find that progressive policy proposals resonate the most with them. I mean, you slap them in the face with Bush-era Republicans who get more speaking time than Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's going to turn people off. But we also have to consider, you know, how many Americans vote based on the goings-on of these conventions? How many yeah. Americans are really watching, right? How many Americans who plan on voting are watching this and will be persuaded by what they've seen? I, I don't really know the answers to it, but I'm going to assume it's not a giant impact. But one thing that we have seen, and we'll talk about this later in the show, is that the gap between Biden and Trump is, is closing, significantly. You know, Biden was leading in the double digits in some of these swing states and uh, Trump was able to close that gap. And that's terrifying. So uh, despite what moderate Democrats think, they do not have this in the bag. And I see them making a lot of the same mistakes that they did uh, in 2016. Yeah, I saw a poll um, that Trump just pulled ahead in, in, in Michigan, which is a traditional Democratic stronghold and an absolutely necessary state for Democrats to win. But anyway, Anna, um, my, our producer, Kale Brooks, is telling me that the, the people are making fun of me for not having books again in the bookshelf, which I think is a good time to talk about our sponsor, Verso Books, because they've just Let's launched a Verso Book Club, and it seems like I need it uh, to fill out my empty shelves. Uh, now you can get every new ebook they publish each month, as well as one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books, as long as you are a subscriber to celebrate their 50th anniversary and the launch of the book club each member tier is 50 percent off for the first three months the comrade tier is now 20 dollars, and if you join in august you'll get sensoria thinkers for the 21st century by mackenzie wark revolutionary feminisms conversation conversations on collective action and radical thought edited by brianna bondar and rafif ziada Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder by Christian Parenti, and the new edition of Nancy Fraser's Fortunes of Feminism. So yeah, maybe I'll fill out my bookshelf with uh, Christian Parenti's book and Nancy Fraser's and all that good stuff. You definitely should. Um, at this point, I mean, I don't know why you haven't done it already. It's like, like those shelves. Yeah. I just, you know. <laughs> I have to say, though, the, the interior designer in me, and I do love interior design, is definitely crushing over those built-ins. Like, built-in shelves are the business. I've oh, taught yeah. myself a little bit of woodworking just so I can see if I can do that in my own home without having to pay someone a ton of money to do it because it's expensive as hell. 
it's also I feel like it's empowering, you know, like you're working with oh, your hands, sure. you're actually making stuff. Yeah. I yeah, yeah. That. No, what I love is how like even at this point in our country when women are taking on more and more so-called male-dominated jobs, like whenever I'm doing that kind of project, I still get all sorts of like comments from men walking by like Oh, look at you working that table saw. And it's like, yeah. it's not that difficult. It's a machine. Like, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not like logging or anything like that. I'm like literally dealing with a machine that's meant to make it easy to deal with wood. But anyway, um, we're talking about this far too long. Yeah. Why don't we it's move on to the It's very easy to deal with wood. Um, <laughs> um, very good at it. Yeah. <laughs> all righty. So should I, get, should I get to it? Yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. Well, in the wake of the horrific shooting of Jacob Blake by a police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, something remarkable happened. The Milwaukee Bucks have decided to boycott Game 5. You see the tweet right there. Sources tell ESPN and Woj is reporting that. We're just getting this news in right now. Yeah. And after that, teams in the MLS, WNBA and Major League Baseball followed suit. The Milwaukee Bucks became the first team to make the decision to boycott their game against the Orlando Magic, but that was just the first domino to fall. The NBA ultimately postponed all three playoff games today, and no WNBA games are being played in Orlando either. But notice the word they used, boycott. What these athletes did was not a boycott, which is typically understood as withholding your dollars as a consumer, like, say, refusing to buy a product because they are made by child slaves or something like that. What these athletes did was, in fact, a strike, as in they withheld their labor. And the effect of a strike is always going to be much more powerful than that of a boycott. Let's let America's greatest broadcaster, Stephen A. Smith, explain. Uh, the Bucks organization as a whole supporting one another, we give them props. The Orlando Magic joining in, we give them props. Because I think that if the Milwaukee Bucks stood alone, it would have been absolutely positively disastrous. It would have looked like a house divided. They would not have looked like they were coming together. People would have found ways to poke holes at these guys, and it would have been counterproductive in my estimation. But when you stand up collectively, what you're saying is, and what you're admitting, Rachel, is that you know there may be a potential sacrifice in here. Obviously, the networks are going to lose money potentially that means the league is going to lose money that means individual owners are going to lose money and as a result they're going to ensure that the players lose money nevertheless the players said damn that the hell with it yeah when you stand up collectively you ensure that the network loses money and that the owners lose money look at Stephen a smith go and i don't want to make this point to be like an annoying pedant in fact, if I really wanted to be pedantic, what the players did was technically a wildcat strike because it was not previously sanctioned by their union leadership. But I think it's important to make this somewhat pedantic language correction because we need to recover the language of labor militancy so that we can realize our collective power as workers. The fact that the entire news media from ESPN to the New York Times and even the players themselves called this a boycott speaks to just how absent the idea of striking is in our country these days. As Twitter great Carl Bezier wrote in a reaction to the use of the term boycott, he said, quote, Americans are so immersed in capitalist ideology that we are used to thinking of political action as an exercise in consumer choice. We even speak of democracy as a political marketplace where politicians promote their brands to voters. References to strikes as boycotts should be understood as an attempt to integrate labor action back into capitalism's conceptual framework where such things simply do not take place. Perhaps some demagogues are doing this deliberately, 
but more often it should simply be understood as people speaking and thinking in the language they're familiar with. That is how ideology works. And yes, the NBA players who went on strike are mostly highly skilled, talented millionaires. Some may wonder, what do a bunch of overpaid 20-somethings got to do with me? Well, more than you'd think. Because the fundamental factor of class relations is not so much your income level, but more whether you are an owner, aka a boss, or you're a worker. And in the NBA, the players are workers, and the owners, most of them billionaires, are the boss. And while you may not feel like you have a lot in common with Giannis Antetokounmpo, aka the Greek freak, because you can't dunk a basketball, you can take inspiration from his example. Yeah, sure, you're not 6'11 and 240 pounds with freakish handling ability, but you are a worker, and so is Giannis. And if you are a member of the working class, there is power there, even if you don't realize it. As Vivek Chiver says, the working class is unlike any other social grouping in the non-capitalist section of modern society. However penurious it is, however dominated it is, however atomized it is, it is the goose that lays the golden egg. It is the source of profits, because unless workers show up to do their work every day and create profits for their employers, that principle of profit maximization cannot be carried out. It remains a dead letter. Workers, therefore, have an opportunity. If they take advantage of it, they hold the lever to the stream of profits that keeps the system going. This idea is well understood by the capitalist class, but it's been erased out of the collective consciousness of a huge chunk of Americans. I mean, Hollywood used to produce movies about labor strikes all the time. John Ford's 1941 classic, How Green Was My Valley, won the Academy Award for Best Picture, beating Citizen Kane. That movie was all about a labor battle in a Welsh coal mine. In recent times, we had Sorry to Bother You, but that's pretty much it. So yeah, the people who own everything in a society are terrified of strikes. It is quite literally, the one thing they fear the most in this world, which is why they've done everything in their power to weaken the labor movement, because labor unions are still the most effective way for workers to collectively organize and collectively use their power, as Stephen A. Smith said. Now, due to the spontaneous nature of all this, the fact that it didn't happen as a result of a specific workplace issue, the players' demands weren't very concrete. But that kind of thing has always been used as a cudgel against people who rise up. I mean, you've seen it before, the whole what specific policies do you support thing. Now, it would be great if the players harnessed this spontaneous energy into a sustained program. And for a while there, it even seemed like they would continue the strike through the end of the season, effectively costing the owners hundreds of millions of dollars. In his Guardian column this week, Jacobin's own Bhaskar Sunkara predicted that, quote, disruptive action cost the NBA advertisement dollars and potentially polarized fans. There will be every attempt to control the league's ongoing rank-and-file rebellion and to neuter its development. Well, what do you know? Bosker was right. And the man they enlisted to neuter this potentially game-changing labor strike was none other than the slayer of Bernie Sanders himself, Barack Obama. According to The Athletic, quote, former President Obama spoke to LeBron James, National Basketball Players Association President Chris Paul, and a small group of players late Wednesday evening, advising them to play and utilize the opportunity to contextualize action they want in order to play. That line utilize the opportunity to contextualize action they want in order to play is liberal gobbledygook nonsense. I mean, the best way to get action is by exercising power. You have power because you have leverage. When you don't use your leverage, you don't have power and no action will ever happen. Now, this should 
come as no surprise, given Obama's history, Obama's whole career has been about using his prestige and popularity to suck the air out of potentially disruptive action from below. I mean, his classic line that he's repeated a million, million times is the don't boo vote thing. It was the players themselves that asked him to do it, and he weighed in. Obama was never going to encourage them to use their leverage by withholding their labor. And it does seem from reports from inside the bubble that the younger players in the NBA were eager to be more militant, and some were angered by things like LeBron James comments and things like that. But it's hard to imagine what would have happened had the NBA players refused to finish the season. It would have become one of the most disruptive labor strikes in decades. But we should not let their brief example float off into the wind. We should take it as a reminder that the working class is the goose that lays the golden egg. Even in a time where politics seems like it cannot solve any of our problems, we do have power. Just ask Walter Pigeon in How Green Was My Valley. Here is what I think. First, have your union. You need it. Alone, you are weak. Together, you're strong. But remember that with strength goes responsibility to others and yourselves. For you cannot conquer injustice with more injustice, only with justice. Still can't believe that movie beat out Citizen Kane. So yeah, Anna, what do you think? I I think that was excellent. And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how do you convince workers to organize and to strike? How do you get them to understand their own power? And so I've been reading a lot into um, Gramsci's theories and philosophy, uh, Antonio Gramsci. And I think that his work really brings up an important point that we can learn from, which is we tend to put the cart before the horse, right? So I, I think part of it is really spreading this message of cultural hegemony, you know, and how we've been kind of living in this bubble where we're actually discouraged from questioning our cultural norms and the society we live in. Things don't necessarily have to be this way. And so I think that, you know, while sometimes I get super discouraged by the work that we do because it feels like it's not, um, it's not leading to actual like tangible changes yet, I do think that there's this growing leftist media um, infrastructure that's important in, in spreading this message of, of labor's power and how important it would be for them to organize and to strike and to actually exercise that muscle. Um, but I do want to bring up one, I guess, monkey wrench to this possible um, avenue in, in spurring actual change in the country, which is you know what we've experienced during this pandemic is a giant divide between uh, working Americans and corporations. And corporations have been doing pretty well because the Federal Reserve is just printing money and essentially giving um, these trillions of dollars in bailouts to banks and and major corporations. So that's part of the reason why the stock market's doing really well, um, record profits for people who are able to um, invest in the stock market, while we have tens of millions of Americans who are jobless right now. So I'm very curious what the response would be from the Federal Reserve if we have these mass labor strikes. You know, it does kind of 
add a little bit of a question or a wild card um, in the equation. But I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I mean, that's, you know, the Federal Reserve played a key key role in destroying the labor movement in the late 1970s 70s under Paul Volcker, right? I mean, he explicitly said that the American worker is going to have to start accepting a lower standard of living. This was, you know, the 1970s was kind of the the high point uh, of of worker militancy um, and, you know, eating into actual profits. And then, the, you know, the Federal Reserve was was key in in, in undermining that. I mean, the, don't, don't get me wrong. That is absolutely a potential threat um, in the future again. So, um, yeah, but I mean, the, the, it's it's just at the end of the day. Nothing, nothing will happen. Like nothing happens without a revitalized labor movement. Nothing meaningful, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, people love to talk about uh, civil rights and this, the victories of the civil rights movement, um, but they often exclude the role of organized labor in passing the civil rights uh, bills that you know we all know and love. Um, and yeah. it, it, they were the they were a huge part of why they were able to get through. I mean, if you read um, the biographies of Lyndon Johnson, like that, uh, the Robert Carroll ones, I mean, they talk about how labor was absolutely key in, in, in passing those reforms. So, you know, it's, 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 it's the only thing that can counterweight the overwhelming power of corporations, right? Is, is, is just an organized working class. That's just no, there's no other way to do it. Like there, there really, I can't see of any other way to do it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. It really is the only the only avenue we got, you know, as difficult and hard as it is, like that is the only way forward. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I wanted to just quickly touch on what you mentioned regarding some of the criticisms and critiques we heard from, in my opinion, dishonest actors uh, in response to professional athletes striking. I think everyone should read Boshgar's full piece in The Guardian. It was so well done because it addresses those critiques. And you got to remember, a lot of these professional athletes, first of all, do have a lot to lose. I mean, just take a look at what happened to Kaepernick, who didn't even do a strike. He just decided to kneel during the national anthem, and his NFL career is over, right? So there is a lot to lose. Um, But when you look at these specific players who recently decided to strike, I mean, they come from communities that have been negatively impacted by, um, of course, racism, but also the wealth and income inequality that so many Americans are dealing with right now, but uh, it's definitely pronounced when you look at um, communities of color and uh, and black communities. And so they're not far removed from those communities. They come from those communities and were, Mm -hmm. as as Bashkar perfectly mentioned in his piece, enriched by them, you know, uh, nurtured Mm -hmm. by them. And so uh, I, I give them a lot of credit. It did. I think it took a lot of courage. I don't care how much money they're making. Uh, there was a lot on the line. There is a lot to lose um, when you make such a strong political statement and you stand up against capitalism, really, when you uh, threaten the profits of the most powerful people in this country. And mm-hmm. don't forget that Orlando is owned by Betsy DeVos. Oh, yeah. And so that, that takes guts. It takes guts to stand up and say something. No, absolutely. I mean, again, it's it's you know there's there's been a, a sort of slight uptick in labor militancy. We saw you know the, the teacher strikes uh, of the past year. Um, there's a there's a strike. Uh, there was a big strike uh, in 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 Portland in in the ports. And but this would be you know like this is like a much more visible f- phenomenon, right? The NBA is watched by millions of people. 
billions of people really all around the world. Um, and um, these are these are idolized figures in the society, you know, like yeah. the Greek freak, man. He was MVP of the, of the league last year. And I don't man, know. I don't know all, who that is. <laughs> we all love him. He, he's a black yeah. Greek guy. He's awesome. You know? Um, and uh, so, yeah. So like actions like that from people like that who already have sort of a built in goodwill um, could be potentially hugely disruptive. So, I mean, maybe this is just the, the beginning of something longer, you know, maybe next season something else happens or, or, or they spread. I mean, the, the thought of, for example, like college football um, players um, organizing and using their power. I mean, they're already talking about that in, in the Pac-10 uh, potentially, you know, that would be utterly game changing. You know, college football is at the heart of Red America. You know what I mean? Like that is mm-hmm. a cultural touchstone almost like on the on par with like NASCAR, right? Um, you know, if, if we started to see labor militancy in that arena, it could be potentially game-changing. So we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Well, my commentary segment today, um, I think, is a nice follow-up to the segment that you just did because it, it touches on the town that made headlines this week, uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. And uh, there was some interesting commentary about members of that community by uh, its own police chief. So let's talk about that a little bit, and then we'll talk about uh, what's happened economically to this part of the country. So after an armed 17-year-old militia member gunned down two Jacob Blake protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, some of the past comments of the county's police chief have come to light. Now, keep in mind that in various videos posted on social media, there was evidence that the local police, the Kenosha Police Department, was working alongside the armed militia. They handed out bottles of water to them and even said that they uh, appreciated them. And so people were wondering, okay, well, we suspect that there might be an issue with race within this department. Why don't we look into it? And then this video from 2018 featuring the police chief came up let's put them in jail let's let's stop them from truly at least some of these males going out and getting 10 other women pregnant and having small children let's put them away at some point we have to stop being politically correct and i don't care what race i don't care how old they are if there's a threshold that they cross these people have to be warehoused no recreational time in the jails, we put them away. We put them away for the rest of their lives so that the rest of us can be better. Other countries don't have the crime rates that we do. We have to get, we have to figure out why. And as part of it is because these kids go to school, they participate in school. If they don't participate in school, they are found jobs. And if they do commit a crime, they lose their licenses for the rest of their lives and they get put away. In this country, in this community, in this state, we have to get to the point that we no longer will put up with the garbage people that fill our communities. The garbage people that fill our communities. So that was a press conference that uh, police chief David Beck gave um, in 2018 in response to shoplifting suspects okay so there were five shoplifting suspects um all of whom were black but keep in mind that uh you know he was very clear there and saying he doesn't care what the race is he wants to be incredibly punitive to people 
who uh, have shoplifted from a mall. Um, And, you know, the shoplifting suspects then got into a chase with the cops and got into uh, a car crash with a 16-year-old driver. Luckily, no one was seriously injured. Everyone was okay. But think about the root of the issue here for Beck, which is the shoplifting, right? And why would someone shoplift? Maybe it has something to do with their economic situation, which I'll talk about in more detail in just a second. But I also want to um, address this commentary regarding crime in America, because I think that we need to take a look at the various trends in crime, but also see the correlation uh, between crime and people's economic situation. Uh, Many people who work in criminology have brought up the issue of poverty and how that leads to spikes in crimes in the country. And to be quite honest with you, uh, the Rust Belt is no exception to that. So while he didn't specify which countries he's comparing the United States to, I do think it's important to look at crime numbers in the United States overall. And multiple uh, measures, multiple studies have shown that crime since the 1990s has gone down significantly. Using FBI numbers, the violent crime rate fell 51% between 1993 and 2018. Using the Bureau of Justice Statistics data, the rate fell 71% during that span. And, um, you know, we hear a lot about how, oh, well, we need these cops to keep us safe. How could you want to defund the police? And, you know, Beck believes that, you know, the, the whole reason why we have uh, crime in the first place is because people are just bad, evil people. But let's also keep in mind that many of these crimes go unsolved by uh, local police departments. In 2018, police nationwide cleared only 46% of violent crimes that were reported to them. For property crimes, the national clearance rate was 18%. So why was crime so damn high in the 1990s? Well, it turns out that poverty actually does have a lot to do with it. And that's according to a report that was released by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. They write that in New York, social factors such as socioeconomic conditions related to poverty, unemployment and homelessness caused by reduced welfare spending were the main drivers of the high level of violence. Poverty and marginalization, coupled with a lucrative, illicit economy driven by an expanding cocaine market and the availability of firearms, led to a 63% increase in the homicide rate between 1985 and 1990. So we can't just simply disregard the impact of poverty on rising crime rates. And as we know, as we've been seeing in this country, poverty has been on the rise, and there's some evidence correlating that rise of poverty to increases in crime. So uh, let's now take a look specifically at Wisconsin, because I think that's incredibly important. Kenosha is in Wisconsin, and this area has been hit hard by uh, the outsourcing of jobs, globalization, and more importantly, the concerted effort of the so-called big three in the automotive industry in um, moving jobs to different parts of the country and later different parts of the world in order to not just save money in their minds, but to prevent their workers from organizing to demand better wages. So about 40% of people in Wisconsin are either poor or low income, a total of about 2.3 million residents. This includes 51% of children, 41% of women, over a third of white people, and nearly two thirds 
of people of color in the state. Gee, I wonder why anyone would want to shoplift. I wonder where that comes from. I guess people are just inherently evil and they're looking to do bad things. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. Look, things weren't so bad in Kenosha a while ago, decades ago. In fact, the town was known as a hub for manufacturing. The University of Wisconsin-Madison notes that Kenosha became a major manufacturing center intertwined with regional, national, and international economies. The once stable industrial base, which strengthened the southeast Wisconsin region and Kenosha's local economy, is now changing, weakening, or disappearing altogether. Kenosha is losing and has lost over a century of its industrial legacy. In fact, back in 2016, following the uh, general election, Bernie Sanders held a town hall in Kenosha. And let's take a listen to what he had to say. There's a lot of pain in this country, a lot of pain in Wisconsin. For the last 40 years, the middle class of this country has been disappearing. We have massive levels of income and wealth inequality here in Kenosha, in Wisconsin and Vermont. Companies shut down, moved to China, moved to Mexico, paying people a fraction of the wages they pay in this country. There are enormous economic problems facing the middle class in this country. And the media doesn't talk about them. Most politicians don't talk about them. That's right. Most politicians don't talk about it, and neither do police chiefs in local police departments who don't want to acknowledge the economic pain that people are feeling right now and how that could possibly lead them to committing crimes of desperation. And so the destruction of the automotive industry um, you know, and auto industry jobs began decades ago. But the more devastating consequences of capitalism hit Kenosha specifically with uh, the closure of a Chrysler plant back in 1988. Let's take a quick look of, at that video to show what a you know century of industrial loss looks like for a town like Kenosha. In March of 1987, Chrysler announced it was buying the controlling interest. With uh, Chrysler in charge, it looked like uh, good times were coming again. Uh, but this community optimism in Kenosha uh, would not last very long. Um, rumors began to fly, and on January 27, 1988, uh, rumor became reality. Chrysler announced that automobile production would shut down here by the end of the year. At the time, the New York Times reported that the Chrysler Corporation closed its assembly plant in Kenosha, Wisconsin, putting 5,500 out of the 6,500 employees there out of work. Only engine manufacturing and the 1,000 jobs associated with it will be untouched, the company said. The engines will be used in cars assembled at plants in other cities. And I'll explain why that happened in just a minute. But just to give you more details on uh, the economic impact, uh, the 5,500 jobs to be lost represent nearly half of the industrial employment in Kenosha, a town of about 77,000 on the western shore of Lake Michigan, north of the Illinois border. Now, uh, through the next few decades, this type of trend continued, and it especially happened after the 2008 economic collapse. More closures, more job losses followed. Let's take a look at that. 
Chrysler plant, by the way, in Kenosha is scheduled to shut down in October. That will put 575 people out of work. Mayor Keith Bosman announced the agreement between the city of Kenosha and the owners of the old Chrysler engine plant that's been vacant for nearly a year. The engine plant buildings will be demolished to slab by the Old Carco Liquidation Trust at no cost to the city. The trust will auction off the remaining equipment in these next few weeks and give the old site to the city of Kenosha, which will be responsible for selling the plots of land. And it's the city's responsibility for cleaning up the site, which could take years. So the city had to pay for the cleanup of a plant that was owned by a private company, which outsourced jobs a year ago. A year before that video that you just watched. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's disgusting. And it's another example of privatizing gains, socializing losses. And so what happened? Why did car companies, American car companies, decide to move portions of its manufacturing to different cities in the country. Well, there was a great piece written in uh, The Catalyst in 2017 that talked specifically about this and how it was a concerted effort by the big three to essentially prevent their workers from organizing and demanding better working conditions and better wages. Let me read you a few excerpts from that piece. It was the assertion of partial worker control that was most troubling to GM CEO Alfred P. Sloan, who spoke for the industry when he wrote, quote, our rights to determine production schedules, to set work standards, and to discipline workers were all suddenly called into question. That was his response to uh, workers organizing and unionizing and winning some concessions uh, from these corporations. He didn't like it. And so from 1947 to 1963, uh, these uh the big three engaged in a period of what's referred to as massive expansion, and they located uh, virtually or relocated virtually all of their uh, new plants outside of southern Michigan. So uh, the choice, as they write in the Catalyst, to disperse production was thus animated by the determination to preserve unconstrained management power. To put it bluntly, management chose to restructure the industry in order to stop their workers from constraining management's autonomy over the work process. Now, guess what? They did that, even though it made the assembly of their vehicles less efficient and more costly. And it was so bad that the big three had trouble competing with imports from the foreign market. The foreign market was much better about producing their vehicles efficiently in a more cost-effective way, and they were also much better to their workers compared to the big three. So let me give you those details. While the big three and their suppliers invested vast sums of capital in creating this dispersed, ossified, and less efficient production structure, the resurgent auto companies in Japan and Europe implemented and elaborated the flexible system that Detroit had pioneered. So let's stop for a second. What is the flexible system? Well, it refers to when all of the manufacturing of the vehicles uh, happen in, in the same place, which thus allows the employees to really work together as a community, as a group, to come up with um, unique solutions to any 
any problems that might arise from uh, the manufacturing process. So that collaboration was incredibly important for the efficiency of producing the vehicles, but also consider the fact that when you're you know, dividing all these different components of manufacturing to different parts of the country with the sole intent of preventing your workers from organizing, well, then you're going to have to deal with all sorts of nonsense and extra costs associated with that. Um, the big three also decided to pursue this model where they just mass produced and kept this giant inventory of vehicles, as opposed to, you know, building vehicles as demand would call for. And so they had to pay for all sorts of storing costs, which, um, of course, Sounds really dumb when you can just pay your workers the money that they deserve, a fair wage, uh, the wage that they wanted to organize uh, and, and demand for. And unlike the big three, uh, Europe and Japan accepted the constraints of the system, rewarding their workers with very high wages, lifetime employment, and a degree of influence over production methodology. Of course, for 15 or 20 years after the dismantling of the flexible production, but before the arrival of foreign imports, the big three saw record profits. But then guess what happened? All of a sudden, foreign imports come into the country and the big three are in a lot of trouble. When the imports began arriving in the late 1960s, however, the U.S. auto industry spent far more money to produce a demonstrably inferior product. This advantage continued to amplify because the Japanese and Europeans could and did regularly introduce new features and more efficient production methods, an innovative dynamic that the rigid U.S. system could not match. And so I want to go back to Sheriff David Beck, who argued that we have a problem with crime in this country compared to other countries. Well, if you want to get super specific, the United States certainly has a far higher homicide rate than Japan does. And so I think, you know, it's I think it's I can't say that it's 100 percent because of how workers are treated. Um, but I would be very curious to study um, how the wages of workers in Japan correlates and also the lack of guns uh, relative to what we see in the United States plays a role in, um, you know, this disparity with the homicide rate. Uh, but I do also want to mention that we have been seeing a little bit of an uptick in violent crime in the United States. So as I mentioned, while the numbers are still much lower today than they were in the 1990s, in the United States, according to Pew Research, the homicide rate increased by 14% overall over the period between 2010 and 2017, following several decades of decline. Hmm, 2010 and 2017. <laughs> what happened during those years? I, I don't know. I don't know. We, maybe we should look into that. Um, at the subnational level, homicide rates increased across much of the central United States, while the few states where they decreased are mainly in the northeast of the country. So, Nando, let's discuss. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know what happened between 2010 and 2017. I vaguely remember some big financial crisis or something like that, but I'm sure it's unrelated. Um, yeah, and the, the point you make about, the, about the, the big three kind of dispersing their workers across the country is a very interesting one. I mean, this is something that um, in, 
in our time, sort of like in, 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 you know, in the 21st century has been a huge challenge um, for worker power because like, you know, when, when thousands of workers were sitting together in a factory uh, in St. Petersburg in 1910, it was much easier for them to kind of organize because they're just kind of literally all shoulder to shoulder with each other. And most of them lived in the same, you know, in, in a neighborhood nearby and in these like giant kind of housing communities. And now all of our work is dispersed. I mean, all the, the vast majority of jobs in the United States are like these like service retail jobs in which you kind of only only work with like a handful of people at any given time. Um, so it's it, it's made it much harder. You know, it's just we're just more separated and atomized. And and so it's a big challenge to to do that. And it's something that obviously they understood. The bosses understood very well um, in the middle of the night of the 20th century. So it was interesting to, to hear you talk about that. Yeah, and also I just want to make a point about how while, you know, on the surface, the sole goal of capitalism is to amass wealth uh, and and profits, the truth is when it comes to the issue of power and crushing workers, a lot of these corporate CEOs are willing to do things that are incredibly counterproductive and destructive to their companies in order to maintain their own power and their own profits. Um, and, and that's certainly what we saw with the big three. The catalyst piece is so important in debunking this long-held myth that the reason why these car companies, these American car companies, failed in 2008 was because workers' wages were too high. That's actually yeah. not the case. The way that they were producing their vehicles were, was incredibly inefficient and also yielded poorer results in terms of quality and innovation. And mm. so this is the kind of messaging that um, is certainly missing in any type of mainstream media analysis of what happened in 2008. I mean, hell, they totally missed the crash before it happened, right? And they just totally ignored all the warning signs ahead of time. But these are, these are you know, we need to arm ourselves with the facts and what we know actually happened in the lead up to 2008 and also discuss just how destructive this system really is because it's not about creating successful companies or innovative products or better jobs. It's really about a system that helps just a tiny group of people accumulate more and more power and wealth. And that's yeah. certainly what we saw in the lead up to 2008. And I think it's and also what we're experiencing other, now. Yeah. And I think what's also important to, to understand and something that you talked about so well is that deindustrialization was a choice. It, it's been it's been sold to us in the last 20, 30 years as sort of the laws of nature, you know, like it's just like a thing that what are you going to do? You know, like you can't do anything about it. I mean, it's just, you know, they, the workers are cheaper in, in China and whatever. And it's just it's inevitable. What are you going to do about it? You can't you can't stop it. Um, and it's that's just not true. Like it was an absolute choice. Like it, it they they there, there are policies, industrial policy that could have been adopted that would have prevented it. And, you know, it's just that's just the reality of it. We can't accept it as, as this sort of metaphysical thing that just happened. Um, you know, we the, there there is these the people in power exercise their power. And that's that was the result. It wasn't just like physics, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. which is how it's sold. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally yeah, I totally agree with you. All right. Well, let's move on to um, one other giant story in the news today. And luckily, we have an excellent guest to help us um, break this story down. 
Joining us now is Mark Diamondstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to come speak with us today. Well, it's uh, my pleasure. So I, I wanted to start off with, um, you know, just helping the audience understand the basics of the post office, which is, in fact, a government agency, but is certainly talked about and treated differently from other government agencies. So, um, you know, let's start with the basic question of how the post office is funded, because there's a lot of talk about the profitability of the post office when we don't hear that in regard to other government agencies. So before 1970, the Postal Service was funded like any other government agency through tax dollars. And in 1970, there was a historic, uh, unlawful and victorious uh, nationwide postal strike. And one of the products of that strike is the post office was reorganized from the old post office department to the new United States Postal Service. And there was a transition uh, of about 12 years. Uh, where there were going to be no tax dollars used to fund the operations of the Postal Service. So since 1982, and this is something that most people don't realize, uh, if we were to go out in the street and take a poll, probably 98 out of 100 people would say, yes, it's funded with tax dollars. It's funded by the sale of postage uh, and postal services. And that has to be enough. And traditionally, it has been. We're in a unique situation now, I'm sure we'll talk about. But it has been enough for the Postal Service to carry out its its uh, mission of universal uh, services to all of us, no matter who we are, where we live, at one uniform and reasonable rate. Uh, and so it's a quasi-independent uh, government agency. Postal workers are actually federal workers, but we work in an independent way. Uh, and so that's what has since 1970 and and the the uh, break, the uh, separation was 1982, where there's no tax dollars that goes into the Postal Service. And so is the goal of the post office to to turn a profit? Is that what is that its mandate? No, its mandate is to serve the people of the country on a break even basis uh, and again, have enough revenue to be able to do that. But it's not there to pack money in the bank to enrich shareholders or high-priced CEOs. It's here to enrich the people of the country and along the way, because they're unionized jobs. Uh, the very important aspect of, 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 of families sustaining union jobs. There are over 600,000 people that work for the uh, United States Postal Service. So, And those good jobs not only help ourselves as workers and our families, but it builds healthier communities and and a uh, healthier country in a general sense, because the better workers are paid, uh, the healthier we all are uh, physically, mentally, uh, and, the, and the stronger our communities are. And the post office is so incredibly important, especially to rural communities who otherwise wouldn't have um, access to deliveries from private companies like UPS and FedEx. Uh, and if I remember correctly, uh, these private companies rely pretty heavily on the post office. They will deliver to major metropolitan areas of the country and then rely on the post office to deliver the rest of the route uh, to rural parts of the country. The, and so, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say that's uh, true. And, and it underscores that how important it is to have something that belongs to all of us. And it's a small D democratic right. And really a lot of the, the, the broad stroke of what's happening uh, in the struggle around the post office today is really the question of privatization in general. 
and that is whether the public services, the uh, uh, public money, something that belongs to all of us is going to be dismantled, privatized, and turned over to those who use those public services to make a quick dollar. And what happens in those situations, and it would happen to the Postal Service if, if privatization were to take place, uh, services go down, workers' wages and benefits go down, and rights uh, and prices uh, go up. But but the point you touched on is actually underscores that if it's a private company, they're not going to go everywhere. Uh, so the post office handles millions of packages uh, a week from United Parcel Service because they can't make money going. And it's not just rural America, although it's mainly that. Anywhere that they can't make money, where they don't think they have the so-called density to make money, uh, they will turn over to the uh, Postal Service. And then rely on that national infrastructure that belongs to the people to carry out that uh, work. So it, it it does underscore that if this ever became a operation that was based on whether somebody can make money, then the people are going to really lose out and a few companies will be enriched. I understand the importance of the post office. I think most Americans do enjoy the services of the post office and also understand the importance. Um, and so the post office needed help and needs help uh, during this pandemic. And when there was an effort to help uh, provide some financial relief to the post office, the Trump administration made it clear uh, that he would veto any type of legislation that would include post office funding. So what kind of threat is the post office under as a result of the Trump administration refusing to fund it through stimulus money? Well, that's a very important question. So, look, there are some long-run challenges, some long-run issues that uh, have created some of the financial uh, problems with the Postal Service. Most of it goes back to 2006, where the Postal Service was forced by Congress, who manufactured a financial crisis for the Postal Service, to pre-fund retiree health care benefits 75 years into the future. That's for workers that weren't not even, they weren't working at the post office yet. In some cases, they weren't even born yet. And no other company and no other agency uh, uh, had to do that. So that's some of the background. But what happened in the pandemic is has become an emergency. Uh, we all know uh, the economic impact of this pandemic has been terrible on the, the world's workers. It's been terrible on workers in this country. 40 million plus suddenly unemployed. Uh, it's having an impact on small business, even in some cases larger uh, uh, business. And so, but it's having an impact on the postal service. So what's happened is letter volume is way down, uh, because look, how much advertising mail was going on during this period. Uh, I'm a proud grandpa and I couldn't go to the store to get the birthday card for my four-year-old granddaughter and fill it out and address it and put a stamp on it and mail it during this time. So letter volumes, way down. Temporarily, packages have made up some of the difference. But all the projections say, coming from the Postal Service, not from the unions, is that in a moderate economic recovery, and that's the best I think anybody thinks is going to happen, um, the post office will lose $50 billion of revenue over the next 10 years just due to the impact of COVID. Now, tie that back to that there's no public tax dollars that funds the Postal Service, and they have to have enough revenue to carry out this wonderful mission. Uh, and so something's going to give. And without, in this one case, taxpayer-appropriated emergency relief, the post office will likely run out of money 
early next year. Now, let's keep in mind that in the big stimulus package in March, uh, that was the stimulus package that President Donald Trump said he's going to veto the stimulus package if it, if it includes help for the United States Postal Service, real relief for the United States Postal Service. They took care of the corporations to the tune of over $500 billion, but there was not a dime for the um, public uh, postal service. So we're at a fork in the road. And and it is serious. Uh, not only did Donald Trump and Secretary Treasurer Mnuchin say that we're going to uh, stop this relief, but the friends in Congress who were promoting it also did not flip flip the script and they kicked the can down the road. They, they didn't tell the Trump administration, well, guess what? There won't be a, a, a stimulus package without relief for the uh, Postal Service. But there's a new opportunity. There's a lot of discussion now. There's an effort, certainly at, on the, at the House of, House of Representatives side for $25 billion appropriated relief. It's interesting. It comes from a request of the Postal Board of Governors, which is a majority Republican Postal Board of Governors, and it's a unanimous request for real appropriated relief. So we are at a fork in the road. And, uh, you know, the people of the country are speaking loud and clear that we support our Postal Service. We love our Postal Service. We trust it. Ninety one percent of the people of the country. Uh, and I don't know anything in life that has that kind of approval rating. True. And um, can you talk about the the new Postmaster General, um, and um, give us some insight on some of the actions uh, that he took once he once he took the job. Yeah, we 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 certainly voiced concerns even before they picked the new Postmaster General uh, that we need a Postmaster General who at least believes in the public ownership and the public mission. Obviously, there are going to be differences between uh, uh, the unions and management. We expect that. We're up for that. But we do want at least somebody that believes uh, in this national treasure and wants to help build it, expand it, enhance it. Uh, so we put up some warning signals early. In fact, there was a nationwide petition with 400,000 signatures saying just that. We want a new PMG that's going to support and build the public uh, postal service. And we were especially concerned because we do have an administration that's openly called for, first time in modern history anyway, uh, openly called for the privatization of the Postal Service. They published it in a June 2018 Office of Management Budget Report. That's the White House uh, itself. And they've laid it out very uh, clearly. So obviously we were concerned about the direction of things. And we're concerned that there's a that, that the agencies, uh, the government agencies are being very politicized under this uh, uh, White House. Uh, and w the Postal Service was set up in 1970 when it was reorganized to take out that political uh, interference. So fast forward, uh, our, our concerns were certainly uh, uh, came to life when uh, Louis DeJoy, who was a mega donor of the Trump administration and of Trump himself, uh, a, a uh, finance chair of the Republican National Convention, uh, ended up getting the... Uh, not to become the postmaster general. He doesn't know uh, much, if anything, about the inner workings. Uh, he certainly comes out of the private business and the non-union uh, private businesses that he's used to just getting his way and doing anything that he wants to. Uh, and so he came in and very quickly 
uh, without any consultation with the unions, without any consultation with the workers, and without any consultation with the mailing community. Uh, just put in some changes within 30 days that has actually slowed down and delayed the mail. Uh, that's a problem for the people of the country. The unions vehemently oppose it. The workers, you know, postal workers are, are and I think most workers are. But po- po- since we're talking about postal workers, we're extremely dedicated to the mission. And if that, if anybody doubted that, they can look no further than the pandemic. We're just like other essential workers, whether cashiers, truck drivers, transit workers, of course, our wonderful healthcare workers. We're out here in dangerous, difficult times, proudly still serving the, the public and binding the country together, which is our uh, mission. So we are extremely dedicated. And anytime we have a top boss telling us to leave mail behind, runs counter to what we call it as our DNA, which is to treat the mail as our own uh, and to never leave mail behind. Uh, so we're, we're in tough times. The people are in tough times. And the underlying concern is, uh, that you can't privatize a public good like the United States Public Postal Service when 91% of the people support it. So you got to figure out how to break that bond. And the way you try to do it is you make it so it doesn't work anymore, much like what the, the rulers did with public education. You can defund it, you degrade it. And at some point, people look elsewhere. Uh, and so we are concerned in the broader sense with anything that undermines the service. The good news is, and it's really good news, is that the people of this country, there's been an outpouring, an outcry uh, in defense of the public postal service. And it's across the political spectrum, which we think is very important. That 91 percent figure, which came out of a Pew Research poll, it was essentially equal between those that said they're Republicans, Democrats independents, greens, libertarians, and whatever. And so that's a real strength. And it's it's the same figure in rural America. It's the same figure in urban America. It's the same figure in suburban uh, parts of the country. So it's really uh, different than what's happening in Washington, where it's becoming a pol- the postal service is becoming a political football, which is unfortunate. For the people of the country, this is not a partisan issue. This is a unifying issue around a public good, public ownership, something that people trust and support. So that's the very good news. And the powers that be have had to blink some. Based on what you're saying, uh, I mean, I was questioning the honesty of Louis DeJoy during his uh, testimony before two different House committees just this past week. Um, Didn't seem like he was being completely honest. And uh, based on some of the details that you just gave us in your last answer, seems like he certainly wasn't being honest in the answer uh, or the statement that he gave in the beginning of uh, one of these uh, hearings. So I want to play that video and I'd love to get your reaction to what he's alleging here. Let's take a quick look. First, I did not direct the removal of blue collection boxes or the removal of mail processing equipment. Second, I did not direct the cutback on hours at any of our post offices. And finally, I did not direct the elimination or any cutback in overtime. I did, however, suspend these practices to to remove any misperceptions about our commitment to delivering the nation's election mail. 
So what are your thoughts on what he said there? Because he's pretending as if some of these uh, operational changes were implemented before he uh, became the postmaster general. Is there any accuracy to what he was saying there? there there's probably some. Uh, mm-hmm. He came in on June 15th. I, as the president of the American Postal Workers, got a letter on June 17th about the removal of some of the sorting machines. I doubt that was done in a day or two, Uh, but it's all happening under his watch. Uh, And I think if you look at the whole package, there's no question that the policies he's implemented are his policies, and they're having the effect of slowing down the mail. And I think it's happening in two primary areas, although I think the whole thing has to be looked at as a package. And the taking out of the machines, look, I've been in the through the postal system for decades. Machines come, machines go. This is just really, at best, ill-timed to take out sorting machines when we've lost 30% of the letter volume to COVID, and we don't know what the future is going to bring. And we have an election. We have a census. We have another holiday season coming up. So at best, it's really ill-timed. But his direct policies that are having, the, in my view, the biggest impact is he has this view that every truck has to run on time. And he comes out of the trucking side. And maybe in the private sector, that's a good policy. It's a horrible policy for the post office. Because what it means is if you got a truck, the trucks mainly go from sortation, uh, processing what we call processing plants, to the carrier units that are in your zip code or near your zip code that then take the mail out to you, your homes, to small businesses in the area. And, and the like. So what, what happens is if a truck's due out at 6 a.m., it may take another six minutes to get the mail from the processing machines to the dock, onto the trucks, and out there. There's also something called extra trips. So if, if a truck fills up, let's say there's, a, there's extra volume, packages are high, packages take a lot more space. So maybe there's four or five postal containers that didn't fit on that truck that morning. They would send an extra trip, what's called an extra trip. Well, they canceled, he canceled extra trips. And then he said that truck leaves at 6 at, at, at six a.m. So here's the story. So he, he did brag before Congress that their on-time trucking uh, uh, processes are now have risen to 97% on time. That's not the question. The question is whether your mail is on that truck, your mail that's due to be delivered that day. The promise to the American people, to the people of this country, under the law is prompt, reliable, and efficient services. And so what happens is the post office is a massive system. And I compare it to water running through a fire hose, and then somebody puts a garden hose at the end, and you watch how fast that backs up. And so mail is backing up. Uh, He also said, if you ask my reaction to the tape you just played, I think he contradicted himself. He said, on the one hand, I didn't do these policies. On the other hand, I suspended these uh, policies. We have some of those policies in in writing that have been given in what's called stand-up talks to workers throughout the country. Uh, If those were not his policies, then he should have said, those are not my policies and those are not going to stand. So hours are down. uh, of the, The total hours that postal workers are working. And if the mail's still there, and the workers aren't scheduled to work, then guess what? Mail's going to back up. But the fact is, but I think, again, the good news is, based on this outcry, is he did have to temporarily suspend 
some of these policies. He also made, at least in words, uh, and words are only words. It's up to the rest of us, uh, the people of the country, to make sure those words turn into action. But he gave some some strong words about uh, real priority to the to the mail-in ballots that, you know, tens of millions of people are, that's the only access that we're going to have to the uh, ballot box this uh, year. So, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, the testimony wasn't all uh, horrible. And and if I can add one other thing is when you talk about overtime hours and who's going to work the hours, you know, the post office has been understaffed for years. We've been complaining about it. Uh, the other postal unions have raised the same thing. So when you're understaffed, overtime's high. And it is too high. We Personally, we would rather more people be hired, more living wage jobs, uh, and all that means for our families, our neighborhoods, our communities. Uh, but somehow that work has to get done. Now you add COVID on top of it. We've had 40,000 postal workers quarantined since March. But that's two weeks at a time, at least. That That's not everybody who was sickened. A lot of people were sickened, but that's part of the contact tracing, who's been exposed, who has to quarantine. Now, when you add that to being short-staffed, those hours have to be made up for uh, as well. And I think the people of the country can accept some pockets of problems with the mail because of COVID, because there's a great appreciation for what postal workers are doing out here. What they cannot and should not accept is policy changes that are creating a systemic problem of slowing down the medicines to our veterans and our seniors, financial transactions, all of the exchange of ideas that's so important to so many of us and back to those birthday cards too. Uh, So, um, and of course, we have census. We have uh, not just mail ballots, but voter information. There's so much, and e-commerce, and so much of the uh, how much people have relied on that, even that much more during this uh, challenging uh, time of pandemic. And, and you know, you touched on 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 DeJoy's uh, words on on the sorting machines and how it's going to impact the general election. Let's take a look at what DeJoy talked about, uh, said about the machines in the House committee hearing. Public. And I'm very Will you proud. put the machines I'm very, back? I'm very proud to lead the organization. The rest of your accusations are actually Will you put the, will you put the high outrageous. speed machines no, back? No, I will not. You will not? Will not. You will not. Well, there you go. I just want to get uh, your reaction to that. Like, what's going on there? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I think that... Uh, I guess some of my reaction is as much as we greatly appreciate support we have from both sides of the aisle many times, uh, we can't allow this to become a bickering football. I think the machines are a problem. I don't think it's the main problem. Uh, And if any damage has been done, it should be uh, uh, reversed. And we're getting some anecdotal information in some cases they have. Uh, at least left machines rather than trash machines. All we asked for when we got the letter back in June was if you feel you have too many machines here or there because the letter volume is down, just unplug them, leave them. And then we have the flexibility for another day. Uh, And in in most cases, they seem to have taken the machines out and thrown them out for scrap. And again, we, we, we don't think it's good policy. We think it's ill-timed, but I think the bigger problem 
is these policies around transportation of mail, canceling of extra trips, this insistence, this insistence that everything has to run on time in this massive operation. Uh, and therefore, mail gets left behind if it's two minutes late. It is absurd. Uh, and we've always made, uh, we've always tried to make everything run on time. But the main thing was to get your mail to you. Uh, and so it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to get much more into the, the, back, the back and forth at the hearing. Um, you know, I would have rather that hearing, well, the, the uh, uh, hearing was, you know, it's, it's, it's fine to have the hearing. He, he certainly needs to be challenged. Uh, he's, there's ethical concerns about his financial investments. There's concerns about how he got, uh, how he got appointed. Uh, and so those are things that we'll have to hash out. I've been probably his most vocal critic, uh, or at least among them. And I will, I will continue to do so if his policies are affecting the uh, service to the people of this country and undermining this wonderful national treasure. Goes back 245 years. And he thinks he can come in without knowing what the price of a postcard costs. That he can come in and make these changes within 30 days. That's a dangerous thing. Yeah. Representative Katie Porter, you know, asked him the most basic questions about the post office and he was really struggling to answer. And I think you make a good point when you bring up um, the conflicts of interest in regard to his own financial investments in competitors to the post office. Um, and, you know, I, I do want to play just one more uh, clip from the hearing because it, it focuses on the issue that's really been on the top of many Americans' minds, this upcoming general election and the important role that the post office will play um, for that election. So uh, there was a fascinating moment during the hearings that I wanted to show the audience and then get a reaction from you. So let's take a quick look at that. Do your mail delays fit Trump's campaign goal of hurting the post office? as stated in his tweets. Are your mail delays implicit campaign contributions? These types of questions. I'm here here to represent the Postal Service. It has nothing to do with, all my actions have to do with improvement into the Postal Service. Am I the only one in this room that understands that we have a $10 billion a year loss? Right? Am I the only one in this room that has Will you give this committee your communications with Mark Meadows, with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, with the President? So, you know, he denies that there's um, this intention of rigging the election. Um, And as you mentioned, he did promise to halt all the operational changes that are happening at the post office until after the election. But let me just note, he also said that he will not reinstall the mail sorting machines, which are incredibly important when you have this influx of mail-in ballots. And the plan was to um, uninstall or to take out of service um, up to 671 of those sorting machines. By the time he committed to stopping or halting these operational changes, more than 600 of the sorting machines had already been taken out of service. And so I give you that context because, you know, many people are curious, is this um, done intentionally to throw the election in, in Trump's direction Clearly, there has been a concerted effort, not just by Republicans, but by Democrats as well, in some cases, to privatize the post office. I know that that's an intention. But do you think that Trump here is trying to kill two birds with one stone, essentially? Well, I've, I'm not the fly on the wall in their meetings, and I can't read 
the new postmaster general's mind. Uh, I would say this, that President Donald Trump's railing against vote by mail, which is a two-pronged assault. One is that it's fraudulent, uh, it's corrupt, uh, and the other is that somehow the Postal Service doesn't have the capacity to handle tens of millions of more uh, mail ballots in the system. Uh, And so the effort of the president is absolutely an effort of voter suppression because on both of those fronts, it's wrong. The Postal Service and postal workers have handled vote by mail for generations for the military, uh, for military personnel. It goes back to the Civil War. It's an ever more popular way of voting. One in four voters in 2016 voted by mail. Five states vote by mail by law at every level of their election, from a school board to a president. It increases voter turnout, and it's virtually free of fraud. The state of Oregon has had vote by mail for 19 years, over 100 million ballots cast in that state over those 19 years. They've had 15 cases of voter fraud, less than one a year. The state of Utah, since 2013, a Republican-controlled state government. The states run elections, and the counties do, not the Postal Service. Zero cases of voter fraud. So the idea that there's that it's a fraudulent system, and is it in and of itself a fraudulent claim? And the idea that the post office cannot handle it, even with some of the problems we're facing, is also wrong. We we do we do almost 500 million pieces of mail a day. During holiday season, sometimes it just with letters and cards, it will uh, exceed three billion in a week. Uh, we just did a national mailing from the CDC to every adult in every home. That mailing came from one place. Ballots come from uh, hundreds and hundreds of different places. The idea of 10 million here and 10 million more there in the system for a postal worker is actually a piece of cake. Now, obviously, we're concerned about mail that's moving slower. Uh, but what I say to people is this. The system is secure. It's private. It's fraudulent free. It works. The Postal Service has great capacity. The states have to do it right. I mean, the state of Ohio, you can get an absentee ballot the Saturday before Election Day. Folks, that ain't going to work. I I don't care what's going on. I don't care who the Postmaster General is. That's just not going to work. So our message to the voters, because it is a cherished, uh, uh, hard-fought and uh, right uh, to vote that people take seriously, is to vote early. Get the absentee ballot early and vote early. And that's not too much to ask. Voting takes a little work. If you walk to a polling place, if you drive to a polling place, if you take a bus or a subway, you wait in line for two two or three hours, that's a little bit of work. Getting your absentee ballot early and voting quickly uh, is a piece of cake compared to uh, that. And then there's a fallback position. If people feel they're tight on time, there's a a lot of states have drop-off boxes. If, you know, if I get the Ballot on Saturday before Tuesday, I can fill it out, and in many states, take it to a secure drop-off place. So I, th- I think that in terms of – I'm more focused, although I think words are just words, but I think the fact that the joy with this public outcry has had to commit to treat all ballot mail as first-class mail, to give it top priority – Uh, He's invited the four postal unions to serve on a national task force with uh, his team and others just around vote by mail. We're going to do that. 
because we think that's what the people of the country deserve. And that doesn't mean we agree with his other policies. And I'll say this. What kind of policy is it to say that we're going to delay these these changes just until November, as if mail after November is not as important? Or we're just going to do we're just going to do the ballots right and not care about medicine and not care about financial transactions and not care about personal correspondence or pension checks and and stimulus checks, Social Security checks. So obviously we got some battles ahead, uh, but I think the vote by mail system works. I think we're going to make it work, and I think people are going to have to work to make sure that they get that ballot uh, uh, in, in early. But there's no question from this White House that their goal has been voter suppression to undermine people's confidence in vote by mail. And the, act, the objective actions of the new PMG unfortunately feed that because the mail system is not working as well as it has been or it should be. And... Switching gears a little bit, your union endorsed Senator Bernie Sanders for president a few days before the Iowa caucus back in January. And one of the policies that he's talked about a lot is to transform the post office into a hub of of more public goods that includes things like postal banking. Uh, What are your thoughts on these proposals? And in a in a different kind of in a different world, what role should the post office play? So let me just correct you on one thing. Our, Our national executive board endorsed. Senator Sanders for president. We didn't have a process by which the whole union could speak that would happen at a national convention. So we like to be very clear on that. And Senator Sanders has been a tremendous supporter of the public postal service, our union, all unions, and at least U.S. workers in uh, general. So we were proud to have made that endorsement both in this round and in 2016. We completely agree with him about some of the uh, role and have been raising it ourselves and together with him and others that the post office can just do so much more as a uh, what again what we call a national treasure that belongs to all of us. Postal banking is a great example. We use the term kind of loosely. Uh, there used to be a savings bank in the post office in the United States Post Office for about 60 years. Uh, But what we would like to see is expanded financial services. And it's a public counter to this predatory payday lending check cashing industry. So, for instance, and we've said to the post office, look, we're not asking you to do it overnight. Let's try some pilots. Let's try some plans. But we would like to see the post office do paycheck cashing where it gets put onto a a no-fee debit card so that people don't get ripped off, not just in the cashing of the check, but in every time they use a debit card. We would like to see a, uh, uh, ATMs and post office, money transfers, uh, uh, remittances, um, the, the uh, ability to pay bills online. The Postal Service has been doing financial services for years. It's called money orders. Uh, and there's, and, but they haven't brought that up to the electronic uh, digital uh, world. There are many other things the post office could do from licensing. There are certain state functions, uh, although we certainly want and support state workers doing those functions. There are many areas of the country where someone to actually uh, get to a person, they have to travel 100 miles or they have to travel 60 miles. And here there's a post office right in the neighborhood uh, that they support and they trust. 
Uh, I would like to see, and others, we've we've raised this. Why couldn't uh, many post offices? It depends on the physical layout, but you could have electric car charging stations at so many post offices, which would help the post office also become have a more uh, fuel efficient fleet themselves. I think it's the largest. So I think it's the largest fleet, one of the largest fleets in the world. Uh, but the idea that somebody could come in, plug in their car take care of some postal business, run down to the drugstore, the coffee shop, whatever, come back and off you go. And the postal service could become part of that infrastructure, uh, both in rural America and urban. Uh, so there are a lot of great things. There's been talk about that the eyes and ears on road conditions, on pollution, on air quality. Uh, the post office, uh, the postal workers already uh, keep an eye on their customers. The wonderful letter carriers, we don't represent them as our union, but letter carriers are known for keeping an eye on their customers. If mail starts piling up, they often know where the son or daughter lives if, if it's an elderly person. Um, they, they have uh, been able to alert authorities when people are sick and, uh, and uh, need help. So there are all sorts of things that we can do rather than this cutting, you know, when, 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 when Mr. DeJoy was talking about the 10 billion, well, for one thing, most of that is the pre-funding crap to be blunt about it, that I was talking about earlier. Without that, most of the operations without this financial crisis have actually been in the positive column if it's honest accounting. But the answer isn't to cut and slash. The answer is to expand and grow. And what he's doing, in my view, and I'm not a businessman, I don't want to be a businessman. But what he's doing is he's driving away revenue and business. Because if you start slowing down mail, that's what's happening. And we already know that's what's happening. eBay, one of the biggest, you have you know millions of small businesses that use that platform. They're already warning people that order on eBay that the post office is having problems and you may want to go elsewhere. How can that be good? to help keep this public entity going. It relies not on tax dollars, but on revenue. So rather than slashing and cutting, this is the time people want things sooner and quicker, uh, not slower and later. Uh, And there's so many things that uh, uh, the post office can be done. If if your listeners have heard of this store-to-door concept, so a lot of retailers, rather than using warehousing now, they're using the footprint of their retail space because not as many people are coming in and it brings orders closer to the customer. That's called store to door. There's no one better situated than the public post office to be able to do that. And some of that could be same day. Some of it could be the uh, uh, next day. Internet returns. It shocked me. 30% of internet orders are returned. <laughs> so there's not just this one way thing or what they call the last mile. That package then has to go back and that becomes the first mile and it has to go through our processing uh, plants. And and so there's just so many things that people want to use imagination uh, and to really build postal services like we haven't seen before. Or maybe we have seen before and now we've got to do it again, such as postal banking. So my final question to you is, well, it's a two-pronged question. What is um, your union doing specifically to protect the post office from um, this assault 
in an effort to privatize it? And what can Americans do to help protect the post office? Well, we're, 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 I guess we're doing the same thing. Uh, our main way is we we built, uh, interestingly, and uh, l- l- let me get this point in because I raise it everywhere I, I, I speak. Uh, our problems of postal privatization did not start with this administration. They're not going to end with this administration. But they have intensified uh, and they have gotten, gotten they, and this administration is far more aggressive about their goals and their plans to uh, get there. But in 2013, 2014, early 2014, we built a, a grand alliance to save our public postal service. So obviously there were already grave threats that we saw. And that grand alliance has over 80 national organizations. It does include other uh, other unions. It includes civil rights, veterans, community, uh, uh, faith-based groups. Uh, so that that's important because I, I think the answer is to what we're doing as a union is we're uniting with the people of the country to fight back. So, for example, over two million signatures were presented to Congress uh, in June, uh, demanding save the post office to twenty five billion dollar in covid emergency relief. It was one day in July where twenty eight thousand calls were made in one day to the Senate offices around the country. We can't do that by ourselves. Uh, And that was on top of calls that have been made more and since. Last Saturday, uh, MoveOn organized 800 rallies around the country. On Tuesday, we had the American Postal Workers Union had a day of action. Uh, So just speaking up, getting to your local post office, getting some signs out there, save, save the post office, calling your senators and your House people. It's, it's in the hands of the Senate now, but the House needs to know that they need to uh, uh, stay firm. Uh, folks out there could go to usmailnotforsale.org. Uh, that says a lot right there, usmailnotforsale.org. For, they, 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 they can sign up to get more information as things unfold in terms of other activities, uh, there will be information there. Uh, and, and, and just keep this uh, public outcry going. And look, it, it's, it, there's a certain spontaneity because the, this is so close to people. There have been people that we had nothing to do with uh, who got out and protested in front of Louis DeJoy's homes, both in Greensboro, North Carolina, and in Washington, D.C., saying, look, this is wrong, and if you can't do it right, you need to go. Uh, so there's just this outpouring, and so we, you know, use whatever imagination, what the post office means to uh, you. There's, there's a way, there's certainly op-eds, um, uh, and there's also a way that people can send in uh, videos, I think, on the U.S. Mail, not, not for sale. There's a way to uh, give testimonials. Uh, And the people in Congress really need to hear, and this postmaster general needs to continue to hear. So the the, the main way we fight privatization, uh, to be blunt about it, is in the streets, in the communities. Uh, There's nothing in our collective bargain agreement with the post office that says uh, you can't privatize the postal service. But it would take a change in law. They can undermine it along the way, the uh, uh, postal management. It would actually take a change in law to actually privatize the uh, 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 postal service. 
So I don't think the people of the country are going to allow something like this to be stolen from them. Uh, and I think if anybody wants to understand what's going on, just follow the money. Uh, and it's whether yeah. this money is going to be taken and, and enrich a few or whether the money is going to stay in the hands of the people in, this, uh, in terms of this wonderful service. So, again, people go to uh, U.S. Mail Not For Sale. You could also go to APWU.org, which is a little more focused on the workers that work there. But there's a lot of good information there as well. Mark Diamondstein, you uh, took a lot of time. We're incredibly generous in in, uh, answering all of our questions. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Everybody, please uh, check out the websites that uh, Mark mentioned in this interview. It's really important to help uh, save the post office from privatization. And, you know, Mark, you made a great point. It's not just about uh, doing what it takes to protect this election, but doing what it takes to protect the post office even after the election to ensure people uh, maintain this incredibly crucial service. Thank you again and have a great weekend. Thank you. Take care. All right. What a, another, what a great Another interview. guy who's doing the work, doing the, yeah, you know, definitely. fighting on the front lines. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Taking, taking on corporate interests while, you know, representing his workers. It's, it's not an easy job. So, and taking the time to have these conversations, which, you know, is uh, time-consuming, as you guys can tell, but important. So, yep. all right. Well, let's uh, let's pour some salt on some people, uh, especially <laughs> someone who's been um, getting under my skin a lot lately, which is Rahm Emanuel. Um, so, let me. I'll set the story up, and uh, we can pour our salt together, Nando. Sure. So. The Biden campaign um, has very clearly and explicitly rejected progressivism in its campaign uh, in an effort to appeal to these never Trump Republicans. This has been an ongoing discussion that we've had on this show. And I think it's really important to not just consider the consequences of that when it comes to this particular election, but think about how this really does move the Democratic Party further to the right as if that's what this country needed. Um, And so the Democratic Party platform, um, you know, made it clear that they rejected progressive policy proposals, even though it would just be a symbolic gesture to say that they support things like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All. Um, But they went even further when it came to the speaker lineup at the DNC. Uh, You had Colin Colin Powell and a bunch of other Bush-era Republicans speaking to a party that has voters that are honestly, based on polling, moving further to the left. And um, if you're worried about the outcome of the general election, you should be, um, because it looks like the Biden camp is taking advice from morons and failed politicians like Rahm Emanuel, uh, who gave this unbelievable interview to CNBC just recently. Let's take a look at what he had to say. Also, that 1980 was the touchstone for an election that was the year of the Reagan Democrat. This will be the year of the Biden Republicans. You can see the Biden campaign with John Kasich, Cindy McCain, Colin Pollock at all made a direct appeal to them. This is an election, in my view, that's kind of got two things. Donald Trump's got death. He has his 41 percent. He drills down hard on them. He hasn't grown it all, but he's trying to energize that base and keep it really mobilized. Joe Biden's got breath. He's got four star generals on one end and Black Lives protesters on the other end. That is a very broad coalition. And if with a concentration, A, not only through the election, but governing, you can take Biden Republicans who 
do not like the anti-science, do not like the anti-diversity, the hostility to other that comes out of the Republican Party, culturally move them into a comfort zone where they're more self-identified with the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. That's what the Reagan Democrats did starting in 80, and it evolved over time. But you have to have a gov- not only an electoral strategy, but as well as a, uh, a governing strategy to see that as an opportunity. And my view is you don't want this to be a transactional election. You want this to be the opportunity of a transformational right. election. No, no, that's not what you want. And I think uh, recent election polling bears that out. Um, Nando, we have one other video from this interview, uh, but before we get to it, I wanted to get your thoughts so far. So it's important to understand Rahm Emanuel was the quote unquote architect of the democratic takeover of the house and Senate in 2006. And that's basically what his reputation was built on, um, as a politician really. Um, and it's, a, it, it's important to understand that the Democrats won on that election because it was an absolute wave election. It was in 2006. People had really turned on the war in Iraq. The Bush administration's response to Hurricane Katrina was an absolute joke. Um, so Bush was like historically unpopular and, and like basically it was inevitable that a democratic wave would happen. It looks like, you know, and Ryan Graham and others have done reporting on this, that Democrats actually underperformed even in that wave election because of the strategy of Rahm Emanuel to basically run Republicans light. Like, I mean, at the, in that in that election, he he bet on, you know, these like former, you know, like generals and stuff and, and small business owners and, and, and people who were just very conservative um, to run as Democrats. And, and it looks like they actually probably underperformed the polling and what they should have, they should have won by an even bigger margin. And he's clung to that strategy and that reputation. He's been very effective at using the media to harness that reputation. Um, and and he's, he is really one of the architects uh, of trying to basically transform the Democratic Party into more of a Republican Party, like just essentially just to turn them into Republicans and make them, you know, ind- indistinguishable. Um, so, yeah, Rahm Emanuel sucks. Yeah. And, and this, the strategy does. sucks, too. But also, I mean, like he has this assumption that even if you move further to the right, the progressive wing of the party isn't going to be turned off by it. I mean, he's talking about oh, yeah. this broad coalition And um, he was definitely providing kudos to the Biden campaign for rejecting two major progressive policy proposals. Um, And he talks about that a little bit in the second part of the interview. Let's watch that. It is no new green deal. There's no Medicare for all. Probably the single two topics that were discussed the most. That's not even in the platform. Joe Biden has been very specific uh, about the direction he wants to take. And from a political strategy, developing a policy both that solves the problems, number one, but then builds the cohesion of that coalition. I would have progressive ends with moderate means. Uh, (laughs) And I think that's a way you make sure that you keep this coalition from ever tipping too far either way. And to date, let me just take the measure. He's done a very good job of keeping the progressive wing and a more uh, moderate wing in the same tent without becoming an easy target for uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans. Remember, you know, part of the Republicans was not only appeal to soft Republicans or anti-Trump Republicans, it was also to give uh, Joe Biden what I call his inoculation shots, because you know and I know next week, 
the Trump uh, campaign is going to put out this secret photo of Joe, bon, Joe Biden in his camouflage outfit with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and say he's this big lefty. And so this, you know, John Kasich and Colin Powell don't exactly endorse and support uh, uh, big P progressive policies. 69% of Americans, that includes Republican voters, by the way, nationally representative, representative sample, 69% of Americans in a poll for the Hill said that they want a single-payer health care model in this country. 69%. That's a huge portion of Americans. And while Rahm Emanuel is yapping about how important it is to appeal to, like, the John Kasichs of the world who couldn't even win a Republican primary... Uh, you know, let's look at what the impact of Biden moving further to the right has been on his campaign, because he was doing really well not too long ago. He was leading Trump in the double digits in a lot of these incredible, incredibly important uh, critical swing states. And now Trump is closing in on him. So just take a look at that. Wisconsin, Biden's um, not leading by much, 3.5%. Uh, North Carolina, Trump is actually leading with, by a small margin. Florida, Biden is leading by 3.7%. Uh, Pennsylvania, margin's a little bigger, but not enough for me to be comfortable, 4.7%. Michigan, 2.6%. Arizona, 2.2%. Um, so look, those numbers are within the margin of error. And if you look at the trend, you can mm. see... How Trump's, you know, Trump's numbers are going up, Biden's numbers are going down, and it's it's certainly more pronounced as Biden was more vocal and his campaign was more vocal in moving further to the right. Why would voters, why would they vote for Republican light when they can vote for the real deal? And the never Trump Republicans, unfortunately, are not a giant group of people in this country right now. They account for about, you know, based on some estimates that I, I read about, about 10% of the Republican Party, right? And so they're disgusted by Trump. But these are literally Bush-era Republicans who Obama campaigned against with this message of hope and change. And now his VP is like, no, no, no. Not only did we not give you guys hope and change, we're going to go ahead and bring those Republicans into our coalition, not just as uh, a transactional thing, but as a transformational thing. And that is disgusting and terrifying. History shows that centrism is a political loser. The center is a small portion of the American electorate. Just look at, you know, Democrats always running these like lame centrists just keep on getting clobbered by like insane right-wing Republicans, right? Uh, Al Gore in 2000, uh, John Kerry in 2004. Uh, before that, all the, you know, all the Democrat, Democratic candidates that Reagan clobbered, Dukakis, Walter Mondale, all these people, like they just get clobbered by right-wing Republicans. The one who won big was Barack Obama, who we know in hindsight, is like a, a neo, neoliberal centrist, but he read left at the time. Mm -hmm. He was considered the risky alternative at the time. Hillary Clinton was considered the safe kind of centrist bet. You know, instead, the, the Democratic Party elected Obama, who, you know, read as like a more radical person to the vast majority of people. And he won. He won big, mostly by energizing his base. 
right? Bill Clinton in 92, 96, he won in 92 as a freak election in which uh, the the H.W. Bush's support was eaten away at by Ross Perot. So it's, it's it, you know, Bill Clinton did not get a huge chunk of the electorate. He won with like 42% of the vote, you know? So it's it's it just history shows that the centrist, like moving to the center in the general election is a political disaster. And in terms of governing, this idea that you can do the sort of progressive ends with moderate means or whatever is insane because yeah. the only thing that matters in it when you're evaluating a politician is something I say all the time. It's not so much what is in that person's heart. You know, it is what it is to whom they owe power. Right. Bingo. Which is why yep. it's so important to look at the coalitions that elect certain politicians because they will govern to service the wants and desires of that coalition and the democratic party if they actively cater and win with by courting republicans like say joe biden does eke it out with this kind of um suburban strategy which is entirely possible he will vote to he will govern to service that electorate the one who got him in and the one who they've catered to right it's to whom do you owe power which is why when you looked at you know, the Bernie Sanders coalition, and it was so important to look at the class composition of that and, and, and the racial composition of that and all that stuff, because that is who ultimately, even though we trust Bernie intrinsically, we, we like him, you know, we, we, we think that he is honest. Like at the end of the day, Bernie will, is a politician and will govern to service the people who got him in, into, into power. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this is why this strategy that is being pushed by Rahm Emanuel, and really Rahm Emanuel is the, the, the architect of it in the last several decades, um, because he was in the Clinton administration as well. Um, it, it's just it's it's been so disastrous, not just for the country on the whole, because he's pushed awful policies from you know NAFTA to border militarization to a million other things. But it is a political disaster for the Democratic Party, even like yeah. from their own interests of holding power. They just keep losing <laughs> to these insane right wing Republicans, and it and it makes sense. I mean, it's that's that's what it is. They they turn out their base, and we don't. Yeah, look, you're you're so right about that. And and we've seen how the impact of this played out in real time when comparing the RNC to the DNC. I think that there was a, a very real effort for the Democratic Party to shy away from anything that even resembles a, a populist message, a message that actually uh, considers the the wants and desires of their own electorate. Uh, They focused on Biden's empathy, which is great, but how is empathy going to help pay people's medical bills or put food on the table for them or give them jobs, for instance? Whereas with the RNC, it was a completely different message. They attacked Biden. They still attacked Biden as some sort of socialist, uh, some sort of radical. And at the same time, Trump did latch on to a message of, you know, lessening the economic instability of Americans. He bragged about lowering drug prices, even though he hasn't. Right. But it doesn't matter. So much of politics uh, is based on the messaging. You can just lie straight to your constituents, straight to voters. You can put out all sorts of deceptive ads and there's a portion of the electorate that's going to believe it, right? And they're going to think, oh yeah, that's the guy for me. He's, he's, he's tough. He's fighting back against the pharmaceutical companies. And we didn't get much of that messaging from the DNC. And so I, I think that that has already taken a toll on the polling. 
Um, and we'll see how it plays out. But for all the people who are like so incredibly confident about how the general election is going to turn out, I think you should read the red flags. I, I, I see them and I'm concerned about them. Yeah. And, um, you know, the polls are tightening, you know, p- partisans will ultimately kind of fall into line. Um, you know, that that was just it's, it's it always kind of happens as the election gets closer, the polls tighten. And um, and, and, and yeah, like I, I remember um, the first election that I really covered as a member of the news media was the 2012 presidential election, which people don't really remember that much because it was this kind of sort of boring election between Obama and and Romney. Um, But I was working at Univision at the time. And you look at Obama's campaign, and Obama was in trouble in that election. Like, Obama was, you know, the the 2010 midterms were absolutely disastrous for the Democrats. And Obama, his instincts told him to run to the left on a populist message in that that election and paint Mitt Romney as this brazen plutocrat, which he was, obviously, but to, to, to really tie him to specifically his op-ed in the New York Times to let Detroit fail. You know, and Obama ran on his bailout of the of the auto manufacturers and specifically in to saving those jobs. You know, Mitt Romney's father was the chairman of GM. You know, so it was that, that was, was really remarkable is that he then wrote the op-ed in New York. So that was like that was Obama's strategy in that election. And he won and he won pretty comfortably. You know, yeah, even though yeah. he was in trouble at the beginning. So yeah, I remember, I remember when he started campaigning in 2012, um, I was at TYT at the time because I've been at TYT forever. Um, <laughs> and, and I remember both Jenk and I were like, whoa, whoa, look at, look at campaign Obama, very yeah. different from president Obama. And you're absolutely right. He just immediately pivoted back to, um, this message of, um, economic equality, which, you know, he completely abandoned as soon as he, he was elected he in 2008. Said, he said inequality is the defining issue of our time. It's like, amazing. It, it is amazing. Imagine like a Democratic candidate saying that today, like a mainstream one, you know, like it's, yep. it's crazy. But I remember Obama said that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to a few Super Chat questions. Uh, Kale, hopefully we have some. We forgot to plug Super Chat questions earlier. Yeah, in the we show, always forget. But- yeah. yeah, no worries. We'll we'll get better at this, um, and hopefully the audience will will get smarter than. <laughs> Whoa, Kale! What the hell, man? You get, you know, like what's the the audience is all full of geniuses. I love every single one of you. Yeah, they're the best. We have the best audience. They're tremendous. The we do have the best audience. Uh, they're also full of nerds who who are so upset that Nando, you don't have any books behind you. <laughs> I've addressed this. Only the Jacobin audience could react yeah. about that. Uh, but actually, uh, while we're waiting for Super Chat questions to come in, I don't know why you're you know, getting so hard on Biden right now. I think actually, if you read Vox, uh, he's going to the left. Yeah. Okay. Biden's going to the left right now. So what's, I don't get, what's the big deal? Come on, man. Uh, as, come on, Jack. <laughs> come on, man. Listen, to quote Joe Biden, uh, this Ezra Klein take is a bunch of malarkey. Uh, Ezra Klein, who famously in the last uh, election uh, wrote that, you know, it's time to admit that Hillary Clinton is an extraordinary talented, extraordinarily talented politician, right? And that she, you know, that her performance of the debates was like the greatest debate performance of all time, right? Ezra Klein uh, just is like a little, is like a little puppy doing these like, you know, just so naive and, and just no, no memory of, 
of like even the last five years, eight years, like he just has no memory of any of this. You know, this idea that Joe Biden is moving left is is a joke. I mean, it's it's an absolute joke. And if you look at the the people that he's going to surround himself with in, in any administration, it's just it's it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing to say. Right. Yeah. And yeah. anyone who's been paying attention to the last like eight or so months, it's been a nonstop suppression of left wing organizers and voters and and yeah, like they they're they love to bring in the Lincoln project. They love to bring mm. in ex Republicans. Um there was a poll that showed that Biden's only getting like five percent of Republicans. And people were like, oh, look, the strategy's not working, that they're not, you know, they're not appealing to Republicans in the way that they thought they would by moving to the right. It might be the case that, like, the people who are never Trump or Republicans a couple of years ago have already moved into the Democratic Party that, like, actually, um, who we're going to most likely, unless there's some random schedule change, most likely going to be speaking to next week. Uh, Matt Carp wrote this excellent piece in Jacobin where he describes this influx of what he calls Halliburton Democrats, yeah. which are like ex-Republicans that uh, have a ton of money and as, you know, uh, just common sense should be able to tell you, like the, the voters who have a lot more money and a lot more uh, institutional connections are going to, you know, their opinions are going to be uh, privileged a lot more than the ordinary voters. So you have yeah. this massive influx of right-wingers at the same time that you have this massive uh, kind of, um, swing to the left of kind of the, the traditional democratic voters. And uh, the only outcome, the only way you can break that contradiction from the standpoint of Biden and Harris is to just drill harder down against the the left is to say, yeah. is exactly what Rahm Emanuel was saying a moment ago. Like it's the, just what the Democrats have been doing for 30 years of you have no other choice. You're stuck with us because of our party system. Uh, and it's just now on steroids. Yeah, it is. It is very true that in 2018, in the midterms, there was a huge influx of wealthy suburbanite voters that voted for for Democrats. Um, and it is also true, as Matt Carr points out, that in this kind of uh, open Democratic primaries in which there was no competing Republican primary, there was a huge influx uh, of, of former Republican voters voting for Joe Biden in the primary. Um, and it is also true that the children of those people uh those you know boomer era boomer aged uh new democrats are like so much more radical than any generation uh in america in in decades you know how can and that they is not just be? the rest of what sorry how, how can they not be i yeah, mean when you really sir, think about exactly. it yeah their material conditions did dictate it right i mean it's it's inevitable right it's it's it was going to happen and um, that's just th those two things are true at the same time. And that's just a recipe for some sort of rupture. Like it might hold together to, through, through November, but like going forward, something's got to give, you know, that they, they, those, those two forces, those are enemies. They cannot coexist in the same coalition for very long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so actually we should switch to a couple super chat questions. Um, and I will forewarn the audience that we are going pretty long right now, so we probably won't get to too much, but um, yeah. uh, Electric Miscellanea asks, um, well, they first they first say, I love the Electric Miscellanea, yeah. He, he writes into our show a lot, so thank you for watching. I'm glad that you came over to Jacobin. Yeah, happy to have you. Um, he, our, the, this 
user asks, are you aware of the People's Convention tomorrow, uh, which includes speakers such as Cornell West, Nina Turner, and others? Any thoughts on whether this convention will do any good in the short or long term? Your thoughts? Um, I, I, lo- I love Cornell West uh, with all of my heart. I love Nina Turner. Uh, I, I support in general kind of these um, independent structures right to 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 do things like the a people's convention you know to to provide an alternative um i suspect that in the short term it it won't matter it won't do much good you know it won't have a meaningful effect on on the election um but hopefully long term you know we do just have to figure out what our relationship is to the democratic party i mean i know jacobin thinks about this a lot you know seth ackerman and others have written about this but there 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 does need to be a lot of thinking as to what our relationship is in the future with the Democratic Party. Um, you know, it's there, I I personally don't f- see any other route other than finding some way to work, either take over or strategically use. I, I don't I don't know what the what the right word is, but like I just don't see any other way. Like th- third partyism not going to happen. And what are we going to do? Like become like republic? No. So like the. We, that that is one of the most important questions we have to to think about. Yeah, I think that was a great answer. I don't really have much to add to it. Um, I definitely support uh, what they're doing, uh, but I I agree with you on you know some of the voters who think that uh, we can accomplish what we need and want through a third party. Uh, the evidence just doesn't bear that out. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, I'm going to shame them for the strategy that they want to attempt. And, and pursue. Uh, I think that we should put all our options on the table. At the same time, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier in the show, Nando, which is where our power is. And yeah. right now it's with labor. It really is. So I think that we need to get better about our own messaging. We need to become foolproof, uh, especially when it comes to attempts to manipulate the left and uh, divide us into factions. And we need to encourage people to organize and fight together to challenge capitalism. That's really our best bet right now. And by the way, I think you're also right in, I don't want to minimize some of the successes that we've seen in Congress because we do have incredibly important and wonderful uh, representatives in Congress right now. Ilhan Omar is a rock star. Let's get more people like her elected. And, um, you know, we can approach this from different angles and use different methods. Absolutely. Yeah. And for what it's worth, um, if people are familiar or even better, if you're not already familiar, um, Dustin Guastella, who's uh, kind of a regular amongst Jacobin contributor, and he's been on YouTube. You find him on TMBS and other places. He and his co-author, Jared Abbott, uh, have been writing extensively in the last year between Jacobin and Catalyst. Actually, the Catalyst essay is really worth checking out, I think. Of mm. Exactly, you know, how do you maneuver uh, going forward, you know, the electoral system that the U.S. provides for us that effectively third parties aren't really viable, but, uh, you know, but also trying to figure out, you know, to you, how do we use the Democratic ballot line? Um, and that yeah. may lead to, at some point, a third party. That may lead to, at some point, uh, the Democratic Party becoming, you know, a genuine people's party. I don't know. I, I, it's like it's far too speculative. But I think what they've been discussing as far as like a party surrogate model uh, is, I think, going to be the means 
forward. And I think what Nina Turner and Cornel West and others with the, the People's Convention, I think it's a great step in this direction that, you know, I think what's it, ultimately it's going to take all of these progressive groups. It's going to take DSA and All Revolution, just the mm-hmm. just Democrats and Sunrise and kind of the electoral wing matched with the, the progressive side of the labor movement of yeah. the nurses, of the postal workers um, and a number of others. Uh, you know, you have to you have to combine these these strengths and these efforts um, and, you know, we have to convince a massive chunk of the population that electoral politics is a viable means to an end, that yeah. just more and more people, as the Democrats bring in more of the Republicans and more of the, you know, the professional class people, they're hemorrhaging working class people. Yeah. And, but that doesn't mean that, like, they're automatically going to move into a new party. That's a, it's a huge undertaking that we have to, like, re-engage people yeah. in the political process. Yeah. So, and actually on that note, there's a different chat question and maybe we'll just stop it with this one because it feels all kind of uh, combined and uh, generative. Uh, Josh Kiddo asks, do you think left-wing primary challengers uh, will have a harder time in the midterms in 2022 if Biden wins? Um, presuming progressive primary challengers. Um. I don't I don't foresee that at all. I don't see why that would be the case. Um, you know, the the strategy so far has been most successful in sort of safe Democratic seats. Um, and I don't see why that will change. I mean, I, uh, I it's it really does feel like, you know, and I know, like, with all the caveats needed around uh, the problems of, of, of generational analyses of, uh, of this kind of thing, but it just feels like in in these districts, um, where there's a lot of young people, they they can meaningfully um, affect a primary race, and we're gonna we're seeing that now, possibly with Alex Morris and, and, and Richard Neal on September first. You know, Richard Neal is a very powerful, extremely powerful Democrat. I mean, he's the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, um, and, and he's awful. You know, I I don't see why a Biden election would hurt that trend. I I, I just I see it kind of as a a natural. Um, reflection of the material realities of the vast majority of people under 45. Yeah. The only thing I do worry about a little bit is, you know, what kind of damage Trump's appeal to all of these economic issues is going to cause to other candidates in the future who actually genuinely have that message and genuinely want to accomplish, um, you know, a better economic system for Americans. Are voters going to be more skeptical of candidates moving forward? I don't know. We'll see. Um, but it's, it is hard to speculate. Yeah, I think that's that's a very warranted uh, caution. Um, I mean, the the other thing though is also that because our country really has two catch-all parties, that you can't really have, say, like in a European Parliament where you have these minor parties that represent a larger kind of spectrum of political differences and strategies um, are like kind of in this last 10 years of like populist uprisings of people rebelling against, uh, you know, neoliberalism. Um, The right wing and the left wing formations have occurred within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. They haven't really occurred outside of the parties uh, Mm -hmm. electorally. Um, Of course, there's outside political formations. But, you know, I think 
you know, who knows? I mean, it's possible that the electoral system will be able to, like Anna saying, that uh, the association with Biden and other kind of more mainstream establishment Democrats will hurt kind of a more um, redistributive economic program. Uh, but I think it's also entirely possible that these things can remain independent and people can distinguish between, you know, there are some Democrats that believe in certain things and other Democrats that believe in other things. And, and I think, I think it's up to the left ultimately to politicize those primary elections more and to say that like, this is the real battleground for working people in this country. Um, Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for your super chat questions. Uh, We'll be better about uh, asking for questions earlier in the show to give you guys some, you know, give you a chance to think about what you want to ask. And maybe you have specific questions about something we talked about um, during the show or during our commentary segments. But anyway, Nando, uh, thank you as always. Um, I hope all of you guys enjoyed the show. And of course, thank you to Kale who every Saturday morning has to wake up early and gather all of the like endless elements that we send him in our uh, production doc. You're a rock star. Everyone have an awesome weekend. And um, if you can, please share this episode. Um, that definitely helps out. Uh, subscribe to Jacobin if you haven't already. And um, tweet about the show. Do everything you can to help spread this message. Because it's not just about this particular show. It's about creating a better country uh, with actual representation in the U.S., which is something that we're really lacking right now. Anyway, have a great weekend. We'll see you soon. 